Irrespective of the uniforms, we were all the victims. Hey everyone, I'm Richard, and this is my introduction episode to Over the Top, a Great War podcast. That was a quote by Henry John Patch, a British super centenarian veteran of the Great War. This podcast is all about World War I and will cover events that led to the outbreak of the war all the way through Armistice Day. I believe we're at a point in our society where many people brush the Great War under the carpet and tend to forget about it. I think it often gets overshadowed by World War II. I think if you walk down the street and ask people simple questions, say like what years did the war take place or who was involved, most wouldn't have an answer to these questions. The millions of victims who perished during this atrocious war is the reason why I'm doing this podcast. I believe we have a responsibility to honor their names and the sacrifices they made by sharing their stories. Harry Patch was born on the 17th of June, 1898 and died at an amazing age of 111 on the 25th of July, 2009. Although he was not the last surviving veteran of the Great War, he was the last surviving combat veteran who fought in the trenches. A British woman named Florence Green was the actual last surviving veteran. She died on the 4th of February, 2012 at an amazing age of 110. Harry refused to talk about the war until 1998 when he was asked by the BBC network to, to be in a documentary about the war. In 2007, Patch's autobiography, The Last Fighting Tommy, was published. In this book, he reflects on the friends he lost. Assigned to the Duke of Cornwall's light infantry on a Lewis machine gun team, at Poshendal, he was wounded in the growing after a shell exploded over the team's head. He believes the fragment that hit him must have hit the ground first and absorbed most of the energy before hitting him which is why he lived through it. Three of his comrades died, which had a huge impact on him, and which is why he became an advocate for peace and that no war is worth one man's life. In the book, he tells about a one-on-one -on -one confrontation with a German. After seeing this German charging him with a bayonet, he couldn't bring himself to kill the man, so he just wounded him by shooting him in the shoulder. He stated in a comment in 2007, I had about five seconds to make a decision I brought him down, but I didn't kill him. Any one of them could have been me. Millions of men came to fight in this war, and I find it incredible that I am the only one left. Harry believed men from all sides of the war suffered equally. He personally experienced and lived through the Great War and fought on one of the bloodiest battlefields of the war. You can Google images from the Third Battle of Ypres, which is also known as the Battle of Pachendal. It looks like a wet, muddy, apocalyptic wasteland. One of the most famous photos you can see is a group of men walking on wooden planks over a muddy swamp. Where there should be a forest, there's ripped, shredded trees. You can see where the artillery just tore through them. It doesn't even look real. It looks like the end of the world. It was just 10 years ago when Harry passed on. Think about that. Everything this man had lived to see since Armistice Day on the 11th hour on the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918. He's experienced the Great Depression, the Second World War, nuclear age and the use of atomic bombs, televisions, the Cold War, the Korean War, a number of other wars, the space race and the moon landing, the internet and cell phones, 9-11 and the global war on terror, and so much more. It really is incredible when you think about it. Here's a short clip of Harry describing the horrors of war. I was 18, 18 and a half. I was called out. I saw two battlefields, 
one at Passchendaele and one at uh, Pilkham. I should never forget it as long as I live. The officer was going down the trench. Anybody who didn't go in was shot on sight for cowardice. We went over and we crawled. If you stood up, you were dead. And I came across a Cornishman. He was ripped from his shoulder to his stomach with shrapnel. His inside was out on the ground in a pool of blood. He said, shoot me. Before we could draw a revolver to shoot him, he was beyond all human aid. He died. In 30 seconds he died, and he just said one word, mother. And that haunted me all my life. I've been a fanboy of the Great War for some years now. And as I said, I'm doing this podcast because, number one, for the millions of lives lost. Number two, no war deserves to be forgotten because there's casualties in every war. And three, for me, I feel this is one of the most horrific wars that reshaped our world as we know it. So much changed after it. The men who fought and died endured years of suffering. They deserve never to let their voices die off. I think it's true that this war often gets put aside for World War II. Maybe it's the difference in technology from one to two. Difference of planes, tanks, and weapons. Maybe it's the classic good versus evil, which is what attracts people more. The stories of the Allies on D-Day, the blistering cold fighting on the eastern front of Stalingrad, the U-boats, stories like the Rangers scaling the cliffs of Point du Hoc, seizing, seizing German artillery guns, the Battle of the Bulge, and more. And they absolutely should be talked about because... They're great stories that also need to be preserved for generations to come. But don't forget about this war. To me, the Great War has just just as much, if not, I hate to call it better, I think horrific stories is the proper term I'm looking for. More horrific. I say this because this was the age of the Industrial Revolution giving birth to new modern warfare. Machine guns, artillery, gas shells, planes were now used, and eventually the first tanks. One gave birth to two, so how can you fully understand two if you don't know anything about one? I like to tell people that when they ask me the question, why are you so interested in this war and not the more popular one? It's estimated that there was around 40 million casualties in the four-year time period, and 20 million of those were deaths. And these are just estimates. Sadly, we'll never get a real number, which in my opinion could be a lot greater. In this war, it was common for a death to be undocumented. Think about a day like August 22nd at the Battle of the Frontiers. 27,000 French soldiers died in just one day alone. In fact, 75,000 French soldiers died in the month of August of 1914. Think about the Battle of, the Battle of Verdun. It lasted 300 days. The German and French death toll, not casualty, but death toll, was 305,000. 440, and that doesn't include the unrecorded deaths. Boys enlisted as men. Boys also ran away, never to return. People also enlisted under false names. Times were different back then. Also, think about the bodies who were blown apart beyond recognition. There can be an arm over here, a leg over there, a torso just a few yards away without a head, and you multiply that by who knows how much. How can you account for that? I mean, think about 
that number and then you try to total them up at the end of the war. It's hard for me at times to grasp the level of death and carnage in just four years. It's the summer of 2019 as I'm recording this intro episode. What if there are around 40 million casualties since 9-11? Would somebody call a truce? A timeout? Would some world leader finally say we've had enough and we can't bear to see any more bloodshed? Is there really lessons learned from nations going to war? Harry Patch tried getting this message across. From a guy who's been to hell and back, he was an advocate for peace, and according to him, nothing justifies it. First disclaimer I'm going to make. I'm not a historian. I don't have a PhD in history. I'm not a know-it-all. I'm just an average Joe who became infatuated with the stories of the men who lived through the nightmare of this war. So any factual information you get from this podcast comes from what I've read about. The first book I read was a fictitious novel, which I'm sure if you're listening to this, you've probably read it. I'm talking about a book called All Quiet on the Western Front, the story of Paul Balmer, a German soldier fighting through the physical and mental stress of war. It's a really good book. Then I read three autobiographies from different sides of the war. Each one is amazing. All three tell their versions of the war, so much in common, yet such different perspectives. The first was by a German named Ernst Junger. His book is called Storm of Steel. Younger, a well-educated man, an adventure seeker and entomologist before the war, was a highly decorated soldier, a real warrior for that time. He somehow had a dark lust for the war as if he was born for it. He was wounded seven times during combat. The last injury was a gunshot through the chest during a British assault. After the war, he became a successful and well-respected author. The second was by a peculiar British man named Robert Graves. His book is titled Goodbye to All That. Graves was an Ivy Leaguer type who viewed the war as duty to country. He was badly injured from an explosion. As his body was being carried back to the rear, they actually thought he was dead. They put him with the rest of the deceased. Luckily, somebody noticed he wasn't dead, and Graves miraculously survived. He became a successful poet and historical novelist after the war. And the third book is called Bailu, written by a French cooper named Louis Barthas. If you don't know what a cooper is, a cooper is a barrel maker. He made wine barrels, even returned to doing this after the war. Pailu is about a a man being pulled from his normal happy life to participate in a war that he didn't approve of. As others seen it as their duty, as their time for glory, he couldn't understand it all and seen it as senseless. He served most of the duration of the war, even did his rotation in Verdun as all French soldiers did in 1916 and it's a miracle he made it home. I'll have separate episodes for each of these extraordinary gentlemen in the future. These books should be a must if you're reading about the Great War. I grew up in the 80s and the early 90s. I was really into horror movies and a magazine called Fangoria. Slasher movies, zombie movies, just about any gory movie from that time, I'll bet you I've seen it. Yeah, it's kind of weird for a kid to be watching those type of movies, but hey, it was different times and it is what it is. Don't judge me. I think the more books I read about the Great War, it somehow, in a weird way, brings back the memories of watching those type of movies, which may also be the reason why I latched onto the Great War. Some of these stories are so horrific, they didn't even sound real. Men trudging through the mud, stepping over decaying bodies of their fallen pals. Stories of rats feasting on dead bodies. Sometimes a person's still alive, but too badly injured to stop the rats from feasting. The same rats feasting on the dying and dead also was the same rats living with the men in the trenches. 
crawling on them at night, crawling over their food. Imagine being eaten by rats while you're still alive. Screams and desperate pleas for help coming from no man's land, tormenting those who couldn't help. There was a story on the Western Front. During a bad rainstorm, some of the buried bodies started to rise back up. That's what they did. They often had to bury the dead in the same trenches they were living and fighting out of at the time. If artillery was raining down and bullets hissing over nonstop, the men dug shallow graves and buried the dead right then and there because leaving the trench meant they could also be killed. This not only attracted the rats, now you're talking diseases. And one can only imagine the stench. A soldier was trudging through the trench to another position down the line. Rain coming down, the mud was so thick, then to make the situation more miserable, his foot penetrated through the inside of a rotting chest cavity. I mean, can you imagine that your foot is in the inside of a decaying human chest? The stench of its slimy, rotting carcass would make any man's face turn green. Bodies being blown apart, blown into the open, even blown into trees, the carnage and gore seemed unreal. Sadly, this isn't some movie with special effects. These stories are real. This is what those men had to endure. As my book collection started to pile up, and after the handful of times I had to hear my wife say, Take these books to the garage. It looks like clutter. Blah, blah, blah. In that exact same voice. The last thing I wanted to do was let them collect dust in the garage. I would rather donate them to a library if it came to that. So I asked myself, what was I going to do with all these books? Starting a podcast was the answer, and now I'm here. This, of course, is a podcast about the history of the Great War. But I want it to be more than that. It's also retelling the personal accounts and experiences from the war. This is the most important thing we can preserve. The stories of what was seen through their eyes. History sometimes can be boring. If it's just one person explaining it through a monotone voice, that can sometimes put you to sleep. What I'm striving for, my vision, is for this podcast to be scary, shocking, gruesome, emotional, just as they witnessed it. I'll also do some biography episodes on people who may not have played a role in combat, but played some form of role in the war that I find interesting. And this brings me to the second disclaimer. Well, maybe not so much a disclaimer. I think this is me apologizing for something before it happens. I was in the army for nine years. I picked up a couple bad habits and one of those bad habits is cursing and it's still with me today. I once cursed in front of my grandma and that didn't go so good for me. I can't help it. I will do my best to limit it, but when I get passionate about a story I'm telling or even when I start fumbling some words, it's just easy for me to start lashing out curse words. Sorry, I'm human, it just happens. There will be some explicit language, and to anyone who might be offended, I apologize and hope you stay on board for the show. Now, about recording episodes. I record out of my home, as I'm sure a lot of podcasters do. My wife made me a little studio in her home that I'm now calling Les Studio, and it's working great for me, so there's no plans to change anything. But this also means there's going to be some challenges and interferences for me to work around. If by chance you hear some sounds in the background, like somebody may be in the room with me, some sort of heavy breathing like Jabba the Hutt, don't get scared or worried for my life. It's just my English bulldog doing what he does best. Snoring, burping, farting, and breathing loudly. I mean, for real, he's pretty loud and rude. He walks around the house as if he pays the bills. I can't lock him out, 
he'll just voice his disapproval of the situation. And I can't edit him out. That's beyond my editing skills. So we'll just have to accept the fact he's part of the show. A silent, hoping silent, as I'm doing the fingers, guest. Also, it's hot as balls in the studio during the summer with no AC. So I'm not turning off the AC to record. I'll have a melting breakdown if I did that. So if you hear the air blowing, which I'm pretty sure you won't, just know it's for my comfort and it's to prevent me and my dog from having heat strokes. I really don't know how long each episode will be out the gate. This type of podcast is new to me. And by this type of podcast, I mean there's no interactions with any other human. It's just me, myself, and I talking into a mic. Unless I'm conducting an interview, of course. I script these shows to have some sort of smooth flow, or at least that's what I'm hoping for. I would like to get the episode around the 45-minute mark, but I think it'll take a couple recordings to set the groove, so I'll just play that by episode. Podcasts like this aren't easy to put together. There's mountains of research and information to collect along with editing. It's going to be a challenge being it's a one-man show, but I'm up for this challenge because talking about the Great War makes me happy. I enjoy this. In a perfect world, I like to get one episode episode out a week, but I don't want to overcommit myself out the gate, so I'm thinking more like an episode every other week to start. I think that's doable for now, but again, this can change. When I started the process of putting over the top together, I was stuck on a timeline. I had to take some time and really think about how I wanted to lay this out. Like traditional history, it makes sense to cover from start to finish as it happens makes sense having consistent jumping back and forth from timelines could possibly ruin the flow and make things confusing but there can be exceptions what if i just put an episode together let's just say about the battle of champagne and later on i come across historical information that i may have missed or just learned about that i find exciting i would like to share that information and i think it would be okay to go back and talk about it for the most part yes I'll try to cover from start to finish, but I think from time to time, I may go back and cover something. Also, my episodes on what I'm covering is based on the availability of information. For example, just in 1914, after the kickoff of the war, there were dozens of battles between August and December of that year, and information and books on each of these battles isn't readily available. Books on the Battle of Tannenberg, First Battle of Ypres and the Marne are readily available and they're easy to get. However, books on the Battle of Mons, the Battle of Champagne, Battle of Albert, they're not so easy to find. And I don't want to play Inspector Gadget trying to solve the case of where to find the hard books. So sometimes it might be easier just to cover a month alone, bundle things up rather than focus on a certain battle that isn't well known. I'm hoping this makes sense. Last disclaimer I want to throw out, and I think this is the most important. It's regarding opinions. If I'm not stating historical facts or retelling an individual story or something that is just factually true, I'm going to be throwing out a lot of my own personal opinions. For example, I think Winston Winston Churchill is kind of an asshole. I think the politicians involved in this war are a bunch of jackasses who should have been lined up and shot. These are just my opinions. And folks, here's the thing. As opinions, you don't have to get worked up over them because everyone is entitled to them. You're not always going to agree with them, and that's perfectly normal. 
you know, everybody doesn't always have to agree with everybody's opinion. No big deal. I know a lot of times when historians, and again, I'm not a historian, so when smarter than myself kind of people talk about the Great War, often they'll describe it as a good versus evil scenario. I think that is false, and that's my opinion. The thing is, Germany wasn't the first nation to mobilize its army, so how can they be viewed as the aggressor? It seemed at one point in the later part of July 1914 that France and Russia wanted this war more than anyone. This war was created by politicians and aristocrats from all nations that were involved. They had a chance at peace. They could have avoided this if they really wanted to. The Brits, the French, the Russians, the Germans, all of them. All politicians, in my opinions, are equally guilty. They should have all been put on trial for crimes against humanity, taken to the front so they could see the devastation they created, and then they should have been shot. When you have 40 million casualties and 20 plus million of those are deaths in just four years, that goes beyond mass murder. Uh, I'm not even sure if there's a word that can describe those responsible. They wanted blood and they got it. So no, I'm not gonna talk about one side being the good and one side being the bad. Mothers from all sides lost children and husbands. Families were devastated with losses across the globe. No matter what language you speak, I'm sure the pain of losing a loved one is a universal feeling. So I'm not going to blacken any one side as so many people have done. That's reference to the German World War I cemeteries. The gravestones are blackened to represent shame. A big inspiration for me doing this show comes from when my wife and I traveled to France and Belgium the past couple years to explore the Western Front sites. We visited champagne ossuary the Meuse-Argonne American Cemetery, Notre-Dame-de-Lorette Memorial, Thiepville Memorial, Vimy Monument, dumont ossory and Verdun, Langemark German Cemeteries, Flanders Fields, and more. Each site has its own unique feeling, and if you've been to these places, you know what I mean. It's humbling, sad, jaw-dropping, eerie, kind of haunting, yet peaceful in some sort of weird way. It's hard to explain, but it's a must-see if you're into history and traveling. Every night in Ypres, Belgium, at 2000 hours, a memorial for the missing takes place to honor the 54,000-plus Commonwealth soldiers with no known graves. Here's a short clip of the ceremony. And I think that's going to be it for this introduction episode. Please like and follow Over the Top, a great word podcast on Instagram and Facebook. I'll be posting release dates on upcoming episodes, and I'll try to entertain you with great word photos. You can also email me at ottpodcast at gmail.com. I really appreciate you listening. I hope you continue to support the show. 
You can find my episodes on Google Play Music, Stitcher Radio, Spotify Radio, and more. If there's a platform you can't find me on, shoot me an email and I'll make it happen. Thank you again, everyone. Thank you.